This show is brought to you by GoSim. Visit GoSim.com slash best of left to save 85% on phone calls when you travel abroad. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Slate.com, Countdown, NPR, and The Colbert Report. place where the expansion of medical care is seen as the denial of medical care on symbolic par with Hitler's Germany. Well, it's a long and fascinating and boring story. It's captivated the nation. So let's recap this season on the D.C. District of Columbia. Anybody remember that show? It began innocently enough. Last spring, a dynamic new president went before Congress to demand health care reform. I'm confident that both the House and the Senate are going to produce a bill before the August recess. Yes, he was. <laughs> and what followed was an unprecedented display of discontent that kept us glued to our couches all summer. It reads like something that was brought up in the early 1930s in Germany. Wait a minute. How dare you! Put to death by their government. We should not have a government program that determines we're going to pull the plug on government. Like I said, it was kind of boring. Hey, we're not we're not done with the episodic recap yet. The president struggled to unite the country. Now I understand everyone's emotional right now, but listen up. I got a three-point plan to fix everything. So the House of Representatives then passed a bill with a public option. Obama knew if he could achieve bipartisan support for reform in the Senate, his dream of health care reform could be a reality. And so he set his sights on Republican Olympia Snow and courted and cultivated <laughs> the prickly senatress and won her over. <laughs> the reformers had done it possibly stop the freight train of reform from leaving universal health care station the junior senator from connecticut is recognized hello are you happy taxpayers lieberman ah! i don't favor a public option you got to take out the medicare buy-in i don't think kids should get lollipops when they get shots I don't get a lollipop. <laughs> Why should kids get a lollipop? Can you tell me? You know what, Droopy? Who cares what you think? You're one senator from Connecticut, a state where people don't even let their generals touch when they dance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some lady in the audience told me about it. up in that bitch <laughs> you only got like 3.5 million people in your state 2.8 million of which work in the insurance industry and you know what we call 3.5 million people in new york the lunch rush at shake shack <laughs> by the way don't uh, don't send any burgers till we get back on the fourth who gives a what you 
and your nonsensical Lieberman-ish self thinks. The Democratic senators have reached a tentative deal to drop the public option. Medicare buy-in is out. Son of a bitch! You know what? I'm the hero. And you know the sad thing? I think he really believes that. I can be your hero, baby. I can kiss away the pain. I will stand by you forever. You can take your breath away. Washington Post on November 17th profiled Blanche Lincoln of Arkansas as one of the Democratic senators most likely to break with the rest of her party on health care reform. Headlined, A Centrist in Health Care Debate, Lincoln Hears It from All Sides, the piece presented Lincoln's stance as something of a puzzle. Quote, hundreds of thousands of Lincoln's constituents are low income and lack insurance, the very kind of voters expected to benefit under the Senate bill. Close quote. Reporter Shayla Murray depicted Lincoln as being pressed by both sides, with Democratic activists angry at her for turning against the idea of a public insurance option and Republicans criticizing her, quote, cautious approach to the health care debate, close quote. The article mentions that the Internet activist group MoveOn has targeted Lincoln, noting the $3.5 million it threatens to spend on primary challenges against any Democratic senator who helps to block a health care vote. So we learn that a lot of people don't like Lincoln's position on health care, but it doesn't tell us who likes her position. For that information, we have to turn to the Center for Responsive Politics, which tells us that Lincoln has gotten $324,000 from the health care sector this year, more than any other senator beside Majority Leader Harry Reid, and the most of any lawmaker on one of the five committees that have debated health care bills. Could these contributions have anything to do with Lincoln's political stance on the issue? The Washington Post doesn't seem to think so, or if they do, they don't want you to know about it. of course, the Republican senator from Texas, and he's on Dylan Radigan's program on MSNBC, 
And, oh, he's got some doozies here. Let's go to clip number six. As you just pointed out, there were a bunch of sweeteners thrown in for senators who apparently couldn't find their way to vote for this bill based on the merits. So they had to get some sort of payoff. We've heard about the Louisiana Purchase, the uh, Cornhusker Kickback, and, and a whole host of other names. But uh, this is pretty unseemly stuff, and I don't blame the American people for being repulsed by it. Understood, I certainly am. Understood. Uh, Senator, I asked Senator Leahy about this uh, from the other side of the aisle just a few moments ago. Uh, here are his comments. If they had won, uh, if the Republicans had won and been able to kill health care, then they would say whatever it took for them to kill it would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, no, this is uh, crocodile tears on, on their side. Uh, again, the argument, this is, this is business as usual. It just happens that the Democrats are using it to win. Uh, do you agree with that? No, I don't. And uh, Republicans are not out to kill health care reform. Yeah. We agree there are things that can be done to bring down the price of health care to make it more affordable. But this bill doesn't do that. What this bill does is puts into law a bunch of special interest uh, backroom deals. And you know what? I don't understand the rush to do this during this week when most of the provisions of the bill, other than the taxes, don't go into effect until 2014. Yeah. So this is an effort to jam it through despite the fact the American people have said they don't want it. So you have to wonder who are folks listening to. As you All right, that's so many great things in there. All right, first, um, he says, well, the Republicans aren't trying to kill it. Who told you we were trying to kill it? <laughs> really? What else are you trying to do? Are you kidding me? What kind of joke is that, right? This guy must be a joker because he makes jokes. <laughs> you're not trying to kill it. First of all, Coburn says you're trying to kill it. Second of all, what else are you doing? I mean, they gave you no public option, no Medicare buy-in, Etc. Etc. All the things you ever wanted, and you still vote no. All of you vote no. It's unbelievable that he would actually say that with a straight face. Then he says, "Oh, they're trying to rush this thing through." We've been doing this for how long now? How many months? How many years? How many decades? We're trying to rush it through. I mean, how tired is this argument? Come on, come on, come on! You're trying everything you can to delay it and to kill it. Now on the kickbacks, look, those are terrible. Are they business as usual? Absolutely. The Republicans did it when they were in charge. Democrats did it before them and after them. Democrats and Republicans do this all the time. It, it sucks every time, but it's a normal part of politics. Doesn't mean I'm in favor of it. And then finally, the parts I liked in that clip was uh, Pat Leahy saying, crocodile tears. And I love how Radigan says, understood. That's his sign for, okay, I'm moving on. Uh, understood. Let me ask you a different question. I don't know. I'm amused by it. All right. So now the, the second clip is even better. So let's see uh, how John Cornyn is upset about the private insurance wins in this bill. You serious? All right. Let's watch. Yeah, Senator, the thing that, that, that has really struck me over the past few days as I've looked at the, the details of this legislation and all the no list not only no public option, but no, again, choice, no, again, access to the exchange for the vast, only 9% of the people in the country would have a look at the exchange, no end to the monopolies, no Medicare buy-in, uh, effectively, other than pre-existing condition, which I think is, a, again, very sellable and valid thing, there's almost no reform, but there is expanded coverage. I add to that the mandate to participate, which is understandable in a reform market, as we have car insurance works because everybody needs it at some point, 
we're watching a mandate into an unreformed monopoly that, to your point, is a, a boon, a windfall. As sure as there's a windfall profit at the banks from the bailout without strings, we are now delivering a windfall profit to monopoly health insurers with a mandate without choice. That's right. The primary beneficiary under this bill are going to be the insurance companies that are going to receive a tax credit directly payable to them to pay for the subsidies under this bill. You've heard our friends on the other side of the aisle demonize the insurance industry, but this is a $400 billion plus transfer of tax dollars to the insurance companies. This is not reform. Uh, this is about uh, basically growing the size of government and its intervention in our lives and getting between us and our doctors when it comes to making choices choices for our own health care. Are you kidding me? Now you're going to pretend that you're against the insurance companies? The guys that have been fighting tooth and nail to protect the insurance companies all these years, these decades, and specifically this year in this bill. But that's exactly what Republicans do. And that's why I'm afraid the Democrats are walking into that trap. They're going to turn around and go, whoa, whoa, we never protected insurance companies. Look at the Democrats at this bill where they give the mandates and they don't give the people choices. We wanted choices. They didn't give it to them. What can we do? Yeah, look, you see that? Democrats in favor of insurance companies. Now, look, the de Democrats are in favor of insurance companies. That's why this bill is not very good, right? But for the Republicans to pretend that they're against insurance companies or that they wanted to give you choice is nothing but a joke. Uh, but you know what? A lot of people who are not involved in this debate and didn't know the details, they're not going to be let in on that joke. And then the joke's going to be on the Democratic Party when these guys pretend to be the populists. It's been the You're probably aware that if you use your cell phone while traveling abroad, you're going to get raked over the coals with roaming charges. Well, I want to give you another option. GoSim is a company that provides international SIM cards you can use in your own phone and load with prepaid minutes that save you about 85% on those international calls. The minutes never expire and can be used in 175 countries. In fact, in 75 countries, including all of Europe, you can receive calls and text messages for absolutely free. I sincerely encourage you to check out the deal at the special URL, gosim.com slash best of the left. Be sure to use this address so they know I sent you. gosim.com slash best of the left. Today's story is called are Republicans serious about fixing health care? No. And here's the proof. And it's written by Jacob Weisberg. Iowa Senator Charles Grassley, the top Republican on the Senate Finance Committee, has emerged as one of the harshest critics of what the right likes to call Obamacare. After spending the first half of the year working with Democrats to find a bipartisan compromise, Grassley has spent the second half trying to prevent one. He attacks the bill now being debated on the Senate floor as an indefensible new entitlement. He complains that it expands the deficit, threatens Medicare, and does too little to restrain health care inflation. At a town hall meeting in August, the 76-year-old Iowan played the age card. There is some fear because in the House bill there's counseling for end of life. And from that standpoint, you have every right to fear, 
he told an audience in John Wayne's hometown of Winterset. One might credit the sincerity, if not the validity, of such concerns, were it not for an inconvenient bit of history. Not so long ago, when Republicans controlled the Senate, Grassley was the chief architect of a bill that actually did most of the bad things he now accuses the Democrats of wanting. As chairman of the Finance Committee, Grassley championed the legislation that created the prescription drug benefit under Medicare. The contrast between what he and his colleagues said during that debate in 2003 and what they're saying in 2009 exposes the disingenuousness of their current complaints. Today, the Medicare prescription drug debate is remembered mainly for the political shenanigans Republicans used to get their bill through. Bush officials lied about the numbers and threatened to fire Medicare's chief actuary if he shared honest cost estimates with Congress. House Republicans cut off C-SPAN and kept the roll call open for three hours, as opposed to the requisite 15 minutes, while cajoling the last few votes they needed for passage. Former Majority Leader Tom DeLay was admonished by the House Ethics Committee for winning the 11th-hour support of Nick Smith, a Michigan Republican, by threatening to vaporize Smith's son in an upcoming election. It's worth remembering these moments when Republicans criticized Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid for his hardball tactics. The real significance of that episode, however, is not their bad manners, but what Republicans ordered the last time health care was on the menu. Their bill, which stands as the biggest expansion of government's role in health care since the creation of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, created an entitlement for seniors to purchase low-cost drug coverage. Grassley Care, also known as Medicare Part D, employs a complicated structure of deductibles, copays, and coverage limits. Thanks to something called the donut hole, drug coverage disappears when out-of-pocket costs reach $2,400, returning only when they hit $3,850. Simply stated, the bill cost a fortune, wasn't paid for, is complicated as hell, and doesn't do all that much, though it does include coverage for end-of-life counseling, or what Grassley now calls pulling the plug on grandma. In their 2009 report to Congress, the Medicare trustees estimate the 10-year cost of Medicare D as high as $1.2 trillion. That figure, just for prescription drug coverage that people over 65 still have to pay a lot of money for, dwarfs the $848 billion cost of the Senate bill. The Medicare D price tag continues to escalate because the bill explicitly bars the government from using its market power to negotiate drug prices with manufacturers or establishing a formulary with approved medications. And unlike the Democratic bills, which won't add to the deficit, the bill George W. Bush signed was financed entirely through deficit spending. While Grassley and his colleagues accuse Democrats of harming Medicare through cost cuts, it's their bill that has done the most to hasten Medicare's coming insolvency. Between now and 2083, Medicare D's unfunded obligations amount to $7.2 trillion, according to the trustees. Numbers like these prompted former Comptroller General David M. Walker to call it probably the most fiscally irresponsible piece of legislation since the 1960s. Grassley is not alone in his incoherence. Of 28 current Republican senators who were in the Senate back in 2003, 24 voted for the Medicare prescription drug benefit. Of 122 Republicans still in the House, 108 voted for it.
There's not space here to fully review this Hall of Shame, which includes Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Mike Enzi of Wyoming, Kay Bailey Hutchison of Texas, and Orrin Hatch of Utah, among many others. Here is Kansas Republican Sam Brownback in 2003. The passage of the Medicare bill fulfills a promise that we made to my parents' generation and keeps a promise to my kids' generation. Here is Brownback in 2009. This hugely expensive bill will not lower costs and will not cover all uninsured. Here is John Kyle of Arizona. As a member of the bipartisan team that crafted the Part D legislation, I am committed to ensuring its successful implementation. I will fight attempts to erode Part D coverage. Kyle now calls Harry Reid's legislation a trillion-dollar bill that raises premiums, increases taxes, and raids Medicare. The explanation for this vast collective flip-flop is, have you guessed? Politics. Medicare recipients are much more likely to vote Republican than the uninsured who would benefit most from the Democratic bills. In 2003, Karl Rove was pushing the traditional liberal tactic of solidifying senior support with a big new federal benefit. Don't worry about how to pay for it. Today, GOP incumbents are more worried about fending off primary challenges from the right, like the one Grassley may face in 2010, or being called traitors by Rush Limbaugh. But what happened the last time they were in charge gives the lie to their claim that they object to expanding government. They only object to expanding government in a way that doesn't help them get re-elected. But all the damage she's caused is unfixable Every 20 seconds you repeat her name But when it comes to me, you don't care If I'm a light or day protection, I don't want to be the exception To get a bit of your attention Love you for free and I'm not your mother But you don't Focusing frustration about the pace of reform and focusing the anger against the Bart Stupaks and the Mary Landros of this world into something positive. That was the brainstorm of one of our Countdown senior producers, Rich Stockwell. A brainstorm that wound up raising $1,700,000 and so far has gotten free health care to just over 1,000 of our neighbors. With free clinic number two set for this Saturday in Little Rock. Did it put political pressure on anybody, on Senator Landro? As Rich found out when he went to New Orleans to represent us, it damn well better put pressure on everybody, even those of us who already consider ourselves ardently pro-reform. He wrote a compelling first-person essay for the Countdown website. With his permission, I'm going to read it in full because he's right and because I could not attend because I was here with my father. As I stood, he writes, in the middle of the 163,000 square feet of the New Orleans Convention Center that had been set up to provide people with health care, my eyes welled up at over flowed. Rich continues, it happened as I watched a 50-something woman walk out after spending several hours being attended to by volunteer doctors. She's decided against treatment, a reasonable decision under the circumstances, the doctor tells us as she heads for the next patient. The president of the board of the National Association of Free Health Clinics tells me why. It's stage four breast cancer. Her body is filled with tumors. 
I don't know when that woman last saw a doctor, but I do know that if she had health insurance, the odds she would have seen a doctor long ago are much higher, and her chances for an earlier diagnosis and treatment would have been far greater. After watching for hours as the patients moved through the clinic, it was hard to believe that I was in America, Rich continues. 83% of the patients they see are employed. They are not accepting other government help on a large scale, not welfare queens as some would like to have us believe. They are taxpaying, good, upstanding citizens who are trying to make it and give their kids a better life just like you and me. 90% of the patients who came through Saturday's clinic had two or more diagnoses. 82% had a life-threatening condition such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or hypertension. They are victims of a system built with corporate profits at its center which long ago forgot the moral imperative that should drive us to show compassion to our fellow men and women. Health reform is not about Democrats or Republicans or who can score political points for the next election. It's about people. It's about fairness and justice in a system that knows none. Rich continues, I defy even the most hardened, capitalist-loving conservative to do what I did on Saturday and continue to pretend that the system in place right now is working. Countdown chose to highlight and raise money for the Association of Free Clinics because we knew the work they do is so vitally important and we wanted to show in real terms how great the need is. We invited several politicians to attend so they could see firsthand how critical the situation is. All declined. Some explained that they talk with constituents all the time and know very well of the need for reform. I have news for them, he writes. These people didn't need to speak. Their actions spoke far louder than any words. Having to get a checkup and diagnoses at a free clinic because they have no other option tells you all you need to know. There are no words that can accurately describe the quiet desperation on the faces of the patients. Every single one I spoke to and everyone I heard talking with doctors expressed their gratitude for the event and wished that they were held more often. They have been given the resources in their local communities in which they can get follow-up care, but they are also the few. Over 700,000 people in Louisiana alone have no health care, most of them with jobs that don't offer insurance. Or worse, they have to decide whether to pay for that or food and housing. Four patients were taken out on stretchers and Im admitted immediately to hospitals. One woman who didn't know why she was feeling bad had a blood pressure of 280 over 180, numbness in her right arm and a slight headache. She now has a shot at survival, but without her attendance at the clinic, it was a matter of time before the inevitable happened. Rich continues, I spoke with a nurse who was there not as a volunteer, but as a patient. He works two part-time jobs at hospitals providing quality care to those who have the one thing he doesn't. Many of his patients share his condition of high blood pressure, but they are fortunate to have insurance to pay for him to care for them while he goes without. His situation is not uncommon. He has tried for years to get more hours at one of his jobs so he will be eligible for benefits, but it hasn't happened yet. Our system of for-profit health care can't afford to give him and others benefits. Might make the stock price drop a penny or two. The last time the media gathered at that convention center, it was for a natural disaster in which our government was rendered useless due to incompetence. This time we were there to cover a man-made disaster of even larger proportions. This is a disaster that goes largely unseen by most Americans. It is not too late for our current government to show that they are competent and can do what the vast majority of Americans are asking them to. The incredibly dedicated people at the Association of Free Clinics told me the clinic would change me, and I knew it would. None but the most hardened and heartless among us could watch that event and not be moved to action. 
Rich continues, I have changed. I am gratified that just over 1,000 people were able to get the minimal amount of care and resources for follow-up, but I am heartsick for the many more like them who didn't have the time or didn't know that they could get care on Saturday. They walked through their lives not knowing when the ticking time bomb might go off. Politicians continue to tell us we are the most compassionate and caring people, and clearly we have done much good in the world. I left the event overwhelmed by the hard work and dedication of the volunteers, doctors, nurses, other medical professionals, as well as ordinary citizens who came to help. Yet, Rich concludes, I am left with one overwhelming question. What does it say about us as a nation of people who can live in a country so rich and yet allow this to continue? Stay super late tonight, picking apples, making pies. Put a little something in our lemonade And take it with us, put it half away In a fake empire Put it half away In a fake empire This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Michelle Norris. And we begin this hour with an interview with President Obama. He spoke with NPR today in the Oval Office, one day before the Senate's final vote on its health care bill. It's a bill Mr. Obama says he's proud of. The president spoke with me and health policy correspondent Julie Robner. He defended the bill from critics who say it's a giveaway to the insurance companies, and he indicated that in the end there's likely to be some tax on expensive health insurance plans, the so-called Cadillac plans. I asked President Obama how he would convince a voter of the virtues of this bill when so many of its provisions don't kick in for three or four years. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand, Robert, that a lot of the provisions will take effect immediately after I sign the bill. Let me just run through a couple of them. Uh, Number one, right away there are a whole host of insurance abuses that will be put to an end after this bill is signed uh, so that uh, through fine print insurance companies can't suddenly drop you when you get sick or insurance companies uh, that have practices where they put lifetime limits on your expenditures. Those kinds of uh, provisions will no longer be allowed. You know, back in the 90s, there was a long conversation uh, and significant debate here in Washington around a patient's bill of rights. It never happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, in fact, a patient's bill of rights on steroids is contained in this bill. A lot of those provisions go into effect right away so that people who have health insurance, and I meet families like this all across the country who are really having a tough time with the insurance that they've purchased or their employer has provided them, they will now have a level of protection they've never had before. Just a few other things that happen right away. Uh, Help for seniors in closing the donut hole, uh, which makes their prescription drugs very expensive, particularly when they need them the most, uh, that is immediately going to start changing so that prescription drug costs are lowered. If you are a young person just out of school and don't have a job with health care, right away we are going to have a provision in there that allows you to stay on your parents' health insurance up to the age of 26 or 27. Uh, You're going to have an appeals process so that if insurance companies aren't doing right by you, that you can actually appeal it. 
uh, and you're not reliant on some in, uh, insurance uh, company bureaucrat. So there are a whole host of things that actually will be hugely beneficial to people with insurance right away. And the last point I'd make is right away if you have a pre-existing condition, you're going to be able to buy into a catastrophic plan that at least provides you some protection. Right now, folks like that all across the country aren't able to get health insurance at all. Mr. President, before any of this takes effect, there'll have to be a House-Senate conference to put it together. One of the big issues is going to be how this bill is paid for. The House wants to tax wealthy individuals. The Senate wants to tax health care providers and these very generous health plans, the so-called Cadillac tax. Which of those would you rather see in a final bill? I think what we're going to end up saying is uh, a little bit of both. You're going to have some provisions that are smart that are in the House bill. There are going to be some provisions that are uh, the right thing to do in the Senate bill. Uh, for example, I'm on record as saying that uh, taxing uh, Cadillac plans that don't make people healthier but just take more money out of their uh, pockets because they're paying more for insurance than they need to, that's actually a good idea and that helps bend the cost curve. That helps to reduce the cost of health care over the long term. I think that's a smart thing to do. Uh, but. The important thing when you look at the Senate and the House bill is not the, uh, the, the huge differences. It's actually the remarkable similarities. Ninety-five percent of uh, the House bill and the Senate bill are in accord. And there are going to be some tough negotiations around the five percent. What we know is, is that under either the Senate or the House bill, there's going to be an exchange set up so that people who right now can't get insurance in the private market can go in and get a good deal. We know that subsidies to small businesses so that they have a greater incentive to provide health insurance to their employees, that's going to be in the bill. Uh, the, the things that ensure that uh, not only uh, 30 million people get health insurance, but also that you have the insurance reforms for people who have health insurance and don't have the protection they think they're buying right now, we know those things are going to be in the bill. And we also know that uh, under either scenario, as I in, uh, indicated at the beginning of this process, it, it's going to be deficit neutral. Uh, and you know, remarkably, I think mm. to, much, uh, to, to the surprise of many cynics in Washington, uh, so far, at least, uh, we've actually observed uh, that, uh, that line in the sand that I drew. Might you end up taxing people with uh, Cadillac benefits and Chevrolet salaries, that is, people who uh, are not anywhere near the 200,000 income level you talked about? You wouldn't raise taxes on those people. Is that a possibility in this one particular Well, case? keep in mind that what we're talking about is... Uh, imposing a tax or a fee on insurance companies for providing plans like that. But the fact of the matter is is that uh, the member, members of Congress, for example, uh, their policy basically costs around $15,000. A lot of people, when I travel around the country, they say, well, why don't we just make sure that everybody has the same plan that Congress has? Well, I think that's a pretty good benchmark. and. The cost of a plan for members of Congress, which are pretty good health care plans, is about $15,000 a year. Right now, this fee on uh, Cadillac plans doesn't kick in until 23000 uh, under the Senate bill. So I think that we can structure something that protects ordinary workers, makes sure that they are getting a great health care plan, but also makes sure that they're not overpaying 
in a situation where they're just giving money to health insurance companies that instead could actually be going into their pockets in the form of higher salaries. You talked about the 5% difference between the House and Senate bill. Obviously, one of those things in that 5% is this public plan, the public option. Um, without some kind of public option, critics say this bill is a huge giveaway to private insurers because people will be required to purchase coverage. Um, without a public option, how do you keep those private insurance companies in check somehow? Well, first of all, I think uh, it is very important to keep in mind that the insurance companies have spent hundreds of millions of dollars opposing the bill. And although I know NPR doesn't uh, have advertising, if you turn the dial on your radio and you listen right now, there will be an insurance company ad somewhere trying to kill this bill. The notion that somehow this is something that uh, the insurance companies welcome uh, is, is just nonsense. Uh, there are a couple of critical protections that we feel very confident are going to push costs down. Number one, the structure of this exchange. Essentially, again, going back to the model that Congress uses and federal workers use, the reason that Congress has pretty good rates, they get a pretty good deal, is they're part of a, a huge pool of millions of federal workers. And every insurance company out there wants that business. And so they've got to compete and they've got to keep costs relatively low and quality relatively high in order to get that business. Now, if you or I just go to the private marketplace, we've got no leverage. And we don't get as good of a deal. The idea here is we're essentially setting up a ability for everybody in the nation to pool together and buy through this exchange. That's going to drive pr prices down. If uh, insurance companies try to engage in uh, obnoxious practices, they're not going to be able to compete. That's point number one. Point number two, we've got a provision in the bill that talks about medical loss ratios. That's a fancy term for basically saying that insurance companies, we're going to look to see how much of your, uh, the average premium is going into actually providing medical care and how much is going to profits and overhead. And by keeping the profits and overhead low, we can make sure that, in fact, uh, prices are kept down. So I think there are a lot of provisions in here that protect against insurance company abuses. That's why they have spent uh, a lot of money and a lot of lobbyists uh, person power to uh, try to oppose it. Mr. President, some people have faulted this whole process for not focusing enough on how medicine is practiced uh, in the U.S. and our appetite for lots of tests and the like. I want to ask you about a recent coincidental event, the, the new guidelines on mammography. Right. They suggested that we've been testing too much, it would be better to get tested less. There was an outcry. Your own secretary of HHS backed away from the new recommendations. What does that say to you about how best practices can actually be instituted in the country? Well, I think what it says, number one, is that we still have a tendency to think that more medicine is often, uh, is automatically better medicine. And that's just not the case. Inside this reform bill that I'm uh, pushing is a provision that has a, a panel of experts, doctors, medical experts, who are going to look at all these practices mm. to start changing how we think about medicine. So and politicians so, defer to their to their judgments, well, to their scientific well, judgments. Uh, one of my goals is to make sure that doctors and scientists are giving the best information possible to other doctors who are seeing patients. Look, uh, if you talk to most health care economists right now, they will tell you that every good idea out there uh, when it comes to improving 
quality of care and reducing costs of care are embedded in this bill. It's not going to happen overnight because we're going to have to change both how doctors think about health care and how patients think about health care. And there are going to be millions of small decisions all across the country and interactions between doctors and patients that over time change the trajectory of, uh, of our, our, our health care system. The important point is we're getting started in this process. And I'm actually very confident that the average person is going to say to themselves, if right now I'm taking and paying for five tests and my doctor tells me that I only need one, uh, that person is going to want to take one, save some money and save some time. Uh, but they need some validation. They need somebody who's giving them the better information. And we have set up a system where year after year, best practices are going to get disseminated across the country. Why didn't that happen with the mammograms? Why didn't well, people I, say, well, of course we should have fewer tests? Well, I think part of what happened is that uh, it was released very quickly without any sort of thought to how uh, this was going to get disseminated throughout the system. And, you know, I, th I think one of the things that has made health care reform hard generally is that, you know, uh, people work off of anecdotal information and they get scared and they get nervous and they think, well, the devil I, I know is better than the devil that I don't. Um, that's why it's so important for us to set up a structure where doctors can get the best information possible. I actually think that the average doctor cares deeply about their patient and if uh, they get good information that says, I can do the same kind of medicine, practice better, and save my patients money, that they're going to want to do that. Uh, and that's why, by the way, that the American Medical Association at this point uh, is supportive of our reform efforts. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Des salauds qui pillent le cœur des femmes et des femmes qui ne savent plus trop de l'amour tire son charme. Des papillons de fleur en fleur, d'amour en amour de cœur. Ceux qui n'ont qu'une étoile ou ceux qui brûlent leur voile. Nation, I am flying high. And not just because last night I interviewed Snoop Dogg. My apologies to our ventilation system. We're still scraping out the resin. <laughs> On the bright side, my glaucoma has cleared up. <laughs> no, folks. If I'm high on anything, it is the bitter tears of liberal Democrats. Because yesterday, the Dems officially dropped from the Senate health care bill both the public option and an alternate plan for 55 to 65-year-olds to buy into Medicare. At this point... The only reform left in the bill is government-mandated post-appointment lollipops. <laughs> I don't eat too many. You're not covered for type 2 diabetes. 
Now, the credit for killing these socialist initiatives has to go to noted Hermaphropublican Joe Lieberman, <laughs> who stated his position on this Sunday's Face the Nation. I will tell you that on one part of it, the so-called Medicare buy-in, though I don't know exactly what's in it from what I hear, I certainly would have a hard time voting for it. It takes true political courage to oppose a bill when you don't know what's in it. <laughs> the point is, folks, Lieberman threatened to filibuster and the Democratic leadership caved. So please join me in thanking him. For he's a jowly good fellow, for he's a jowly good fellow, for he's a jowly good fellow, your coverage will be denied. Now, dedicated Lieber heads, the real Lieber lovers out there, may notice there is a subtle shift in Joe's present position from what it was way back 90 days ago when he said this to his home state newspaper, the Connecticut Post. I was very focused on a group, uh, post 50, maybe post more like post 55, and what I was proposing was that they have an option to buy into um, Medicare. Now, yes, he proposed an option to buy into Medicare, which technically means that yesterday he threatened to filibuster his own proposal. But that is easily explained. Clearly, Lieberman has gone from having Jomentum to having Jomentia. But I'm sure he'll get great treatment. After all, he's 65. He's covered by Medicare. just doesn't know what it wants on health care. The December 16th Washington Post brings the news that, as the headline has it, public cooling to health care reform as debate drags on, poll fines. So does that mean the public doesn't want health care reform? Well, the Post says, quote, there is minimal public enthusiasm for the kind of comprehensive changes in health care now under consideration, close quote. Okay, that tells us something about how people feel about the changes now under consideration, which many would argue are not comprehensive. But again, does that mean people don't want reform in health care, like the headline says? Deep into the article, readers learn that, quote, more than 6 in 10 favor expanding Medicare to people ages 55 to 64 who lack insurance, a proposal included in one Senate compromise effort that appears unlikely to survive final negotiations, close quote. Then we learn that, quote, on the issue of whether and how to expand coverage to those who do not have it, 36% favor a government plan to compete with private insurers, 30% prefer private plans coordinated by the government, and 30% want the system to remain intact, close quote. 
That strong support for a public option, along with the expansion of Medicare, suggests a public much more supportive of fundamental health care changes than Congress or the White House. In other words, the public wants more than politicians are likely to deliver, an idea poorly captured in the assertion that they're cooling on reform. Obama honest when he was campaigning in 2008 when he said he was going to take on the status quo did he really mean it or not well he opened up that issue again because in an interview with the Washington Post Barack Obama said look uh, you can match up the Senate health care bill with what I said during the campaign and it matches up perfectly and I challenge anyone to find any difference oh you shouldn't have done that so we're about to go to work on him I'm going to give you quotes on all the different areas of health care, what Obama said in the campaign, and what actually wound up happening. And all I'm doing is quoting candidate Obama here. So here's what he said to CNN on Super Tuesday uh, in the primaries about mandates. If a mandate was a solution, we could try to solve that, uh, solve homelessness by mandating everybody buy a house. Uh, the reason they don't have a house is that they don't have the money. So our focus has been on reducing costs, making it available. I'm confident that if people have a chance to buy high-quality health care that is affordable, they will do so, and that's what our plan does, and nobody disputes that. All right, so there he is, very clear. Now, we've run that clip before where he says mandates are not the answer. Now, in the Senate bill, there's mandates, and there's no public option, so you have to buy that. You're mandated to buy from private insurance. Okay, so it's even worse than what he fought against during the campaign. All right, now how about the excise tax? He was against, that's the tax against higher uh, insurances, like the, the insurance where you pay more. They say, all right, now we're going to tax that. But during the campaign, Obama said no. Here's his quote uh, about John McCain, who proposed it during the campaign. He gives you a tax credit with one hand, but he raises your taxes with the other. Many employers will drop their health care plans altogether. So he's saying if you do an excise tax on the best uh, health insurance plans, many employers will drop the plan altogether. Now he says, ah, who cares? We're doing an excise tax. Okay. So far, two for two on whether he's consistent. No. All right. Now we go to uh, uh, Medicare Part D. Okay. And this is uh, Bush passed a law saying you cannot negotiate with drug companies, the government cannot, to lower prices for Americans. 
which is mental. I couldn't believe it happened when it happened. And of course, Obama was against it. Here's his quote. Congress specifically exempted Medicare from being able to negotiate for the cheapest available price, and that was a profound mistake. All right, can you guess what's going to happen here? Of course, in the Senate bill, they are not allowed to negotiate with drug companies. So that profound mistake repeated by Barack Obama. Three for three. Let's go to point number four on challenging the system. Uh, what did Obama promise? We talked to Ellen Clift earlier, and she said, oh, he didn't really promise to challenge the system. Really? Let's read this quote. We will break the stranglehold that a few drug and insurance companies have on the healthcare market. It's become clear that some of these companies are dramatically overcharging Americans for what they offer. We're not going to get change unless we can overcome the resistance, the drug companies, the insurance companies, the HMOs, those who are making a major profit from the system currently. He's going to take them all on. Uh, when he got in office and he started the healthcare fight, what he began with was inviting all those guys into his office and saying, come on, uh, let's set up a system where you get to keep the system as it is, but I tweak it a little bit. He promised dramatic change, taking all those guys on, and he didn't. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Now, let's go to uh, drug importation. Well, what was uh, Obama for during the campaign? Quote, and then we'll tell the pharmaceutical companies, thanks but no thanks for overpriced drugs, drugs that cost twice as much here as they do in Europe and Canada and Mexico. We'll let Medicare negotiate for lower prices. We'll allow the same reimportation of low-cost drugs from countries like Canada. When he got into office, this specific bill amendment was proposed to the health care reform bill by Byron Dorgan in the Senate, and Barack Obama actively campaigned to kill it and said, no, I struck a deal with these uh, drug companies, and that was not part of the deal, so no, we will not allow drug importation. So get a load of how awesome a shape the drug companies are in. They gave up $80 billion. That was part of the deal. So, hey, we got something. They immediately raised prices. We did a long article about this earlier in the show. They raised prices by uh, 9% instantly within a year. So then that $80 billion got replaced by $150 billion over the next 10 years in price rate hikes. So it was a joke, okay? They just took it from one pocket and put it in another pocket. And then they got these great deals from Obama where we can't do drug importation. That would save another $100 billion over the next 10 years, okay? And we can't negotiate with them as the government to lower prices. <laughs> Boy, he really challenged them. And then finally, on the lobbyists. Here is candidate Obama. The pharmaceutical industry wrote in uh, to the prescription drug plan that Medicare could not negotiate with drug companies. And you know what? The chairman of the committee who pushed the law through went to work for the pharmaceutical industry making $2 million a year. That's an example of the same old game playing in Washington. You know, I don't want to learn how to play the game better. I want to put an end to the game playing. Well, that is the killer quote, because that is exactly what he's done, which is try to play the game a little better, not challenge the game at all. Now, you want to hear the perfect example of that? That guy he's referring to is Billy Tawson. He then became the head of the lobby for uh, Pharma, Big Pharma, that's the drug companies. That's where he got the $2 million that Obama was referring to in the campaign per year, right? Went to the White House on note number of occasions, 
He's the one that agreed to the deal with Obama, that they not negotiate drug prices, not allow drug importation, and we believe, and this is based on other things, the other two are, are 100% that's on the record. And the third one is likely that Obama would not push for the public option. So he did exactly what he said he wasn't going to do during the campaign. So don't tell me that Obama didn't break campaign promises. Oh, and he, he only promised during the campaign that he was going to tweak things and not that he was going to actually challenge the system. That is not what he said in the campaign. In these quotes, six for six. Violated every one of those promises. Now, I want to be clear to everybody, right? I'm not a, a, a guy who demand, who's a purist, who demands perfection. I get that, hey, you know what? He switched his mind on mandates. I said during the campaign he probably would. I said he would switch probably on a number of these positions, and when you get into negotiations, you've got to. You can't be like, no, that's what I promised on the campaign. I'm going to deliver 100% of it. Nobody can deliver that, right? But there's a difference between, hey, look, I tweaked this and I compromised on that, and now nah, I was lying to you. I wasn't really going to challenge these guys. First thing I was going to do when I came to the White House was invite them in and make deals with them and make deals so that they make more money. That's why all their stock prices are going up, up, and up, up, because they, they love these deals. If, and, you know, if at the end we got a good deal and we got a public option and I could see us getting to a better road, I say, you know what, man, that was a lot of compromises, and it didn't seem like he was really delivering on what he said in the campaign, but we wound up with something very good. Well, I don't think so. I think we wound up with something very middling, and he clearly violated his, the core of his campaign promise to challenge the system not to tweak it. And that's the core of our problem with what President Obama has done. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I, I just want to say, first off, for anyone who doesn't know, I was actually in attendance personally at the climate conference in Copenhagen back in December. So now that I have a few minutes of spare time, I can tell stories from that trip. Now, I got to be honest, I, I feel like if I was breathlessly telling stories kind of as they were happening, you know, while I was on the ground recording... I feel like I could tell interesting stories. I, you know, I saw interesting things. There, were, there was a march through Copenhagen with about a hundred thousand people, candlelight vigils, uh, you know, marches from inside the convention center protesting the talks. They they marched outside in the snow and cold, and it, you know, definitely interesting things happened. But looking back on it, after we know how everything turned out and. The agreement was is non-binding and just very wishy-washy and, and not particularly exciting at all. To 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 recount in any great detail any of those protests feels inadequate. So I'm just not going to do it at all. Uh, what I do want to do is is talk about kind of my personal experience in the city of Copenhagen, and so that's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'll say that I seriously regret not putting out a call on the show for anyone who lives in, in Denmark or, or more particularly in Copenhagen itself. I know there's at least one or two of you because as it turned out, I had some free time in the evenings uh, during the week that I was there and it would have been nice to, to see some friendly faces and, and hang out because uh, I, I basically spent my free time exploring the city, which was 
fantastic. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time there, and and I, you know, I basically spend my time either sometimes hanging out at a coffee shop, doing a little bit of work on this or that. Uh, but actually, most of the time, I just spent exploring. I just walk the streets and and try to see as much of the city as I could because you know my my daytimes were spent so much hanging out at the, at the convention center for the conference that at nighttime I wanted to get out and, and see something. So what I had to say about at least Copenhagen, and I won't even expand my assumptions anywhere else, but my thought is I think you guys might have won. You know, I've I've grown up my whole life just feeling like I won the, the gene pool jackpot. You know, I'm a white middle-class kid who was born in America. Like, it, it feels like the stereotypical best case scenario like I've just I've grown up my whole life not being discriminated against really by anyone or anything and then living in America for all of its flaws you know it feels like fairly you know safe and secure sort of place and you don't really have that much to worry about as long as you kind of have your own act together then you're gonna be okay you know and and so I, I've always felt like I just was incredibly lucky for you know where I was born and, and under what circumstances, and now I'm thinking that at least the people of Denmark, if not uh, you know maybe lots of other countries, but at least Denmark, I think has a solid edge on the U.S. And I came to this conclusion after I found out that Denmark is literally scientifically the happiest place in the world. I didn't know that until I went there. But studies have shown that the people in Denmark are happier than anyone else. And their taxes are really high, and it gets really cold there. So they're doing something right that I can't quite put my finger on. But I actually saw this kind of borne out in reality, too. Everyone really genuinely did seem happy. And they were like the friendliest people I'd ever seen. So back to you, anyone who lives in Denmark... I send me an email. I, I'm seriously interested in getting to know you guys because not only did I really enjoy my time there and felt like I just soaked up the happiness vibe while I was there, but I, I'm seriously considering going back. I liked it so much. So if you were one of the like three or four listeners I have in Denmark or, or in Copenhagen in particular, drop me a line because I would love to have uh, some friends waiting for me w- when I when I go to visit the next time. So as I said, I feel like I just soaked up the happiness vibe. And I really did. I walked around the city with a giant grin on my face every evening that I went out to, to check out whatever was going on. You know, there were uh, live concerts in the, in the town square having to do with the uh, climate conference or, you know, whatever. And I was just amazed at how happy I seemed. And I couldn't even figure out why. I, I heard in an interview you know, after getting home, that Thomas Friedman, you know, the the world is flat guy from the New York Times, he did an interview. He had been to the Copenhagen conference, and he came back. He said that going from Copenhagen to the United States was kind of like going from the Jetsons to the Flintstones. And you know, I actually think I agree with him because he he he. I think he basically had the same trip that I did on the way home because he who's either going to New York or, uh, or Washington, D.C., uh, as I was uh, going to D.C., and as it turned out, on the flight back, 
I had a, a perfectly lovely flight from Copenhagen to London and then transferred and had a perfectly lovely flight from London headed towards Baltimore, which got redirected due to the largest snowstorm in like eight years or something. Uh, and so I ended up in Boston. And, the you know, it, it's a long story, but the best option I ended up having was to take the train from Boston to D.C. in the middle of a snowstorm. And so Thomas Friedman, he told this story about how he basically had that same train ride and how the trains in Copenhagen are like the Jetsons. And I know exactly what he means because they're, you know, white and gleaming and they look brand new and, you know, like they don't even have drivers. They're just run by computers. And and I, I really know what he means about it being like the Jetsons. And then you come back and the Acela uh, train from Amtrak uh, going up and down the eastern seaboard is just, it just uh, pales in comparison to um, to those European trains. But anyways, I bring this up because my trip, as I said, having been redirected, my trip, which uh, was supposed to be something like 15 hours uh, travel time, somewhere in that neighborhood, turned into, I think it was, it was either almost or a little bit more than 40 hours being redirected to Boston, laid over for the night, taking a, a long train in the morning that took all day, and so on, which actually broke down in the middle of the day, had to switch trains, like, as if, as if I hadn't gone through enough already. And I know that sounds horrible. Coming home from a long trip, having been delayed in so many ways... But I'm telling you, I had soaked up some sort of happiness vibe in Copenhagen, and I just floated on air through that entire experience. Which this this situation, which would have put anyone in the worst of moods and made them completely miserable about their lot in life, I I just didn't mind at all. I I don't even know how to explain how it happened, but it's like nothing could have happened that would have bothered me in the least because if anything was going to bother anyone it was that trip I had but it didn't I was just like hey cool like I get to visit Boston for a night and I get to take another train ride and that's kind of fun too so I don't know um something about Denmark I know I know all of us here are uh, big believers in science so uh, the, the the science is in and Denmark is the happiest place in the world I, I s- suggest you check it out Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and call that the end of the show. I'm just going to wrap up, as I always do. I want to say that you can support the show by telling five friends about it. Uh, Frankly, you should be telling all your friends about it. It's a huge, huge help for you guys to spread the word about the show. Uh, You can become a member for a little bit less than $5 a month, which, again, is a huge help. Of course, members of the show have access to the Best of Left Raw feed, which, along with the new year, came a huge upgrade. I really should have mentioned this more uh, more in detail. The members only raw feed was just one one podcast feed that received all of the audio and all of the video files that eventually made up the show. And then of course in that mix ended up being some bonus material that never made the final cut. Well now I've made it uh, better and easier and more convenient than ever. I've actually split up the feed. So the, the, the original feed is there as it as it always has been. You can now subscribe to an audio-only feed if you only want the audio. You can subscribe to a video-only feed if you only want the video clips. And there's a bonus-only feed 
So if you only want to get the material that doesn't end up in the show, you can subscribe to that. All of this just for the members. Of course, memberships are only 5 bucks a month or $55 a year, so you save a little bit that way. So that's a huge upgrade to the to the membership and that came entirely from members making suggestions so i heard what they want and made it happen so check out all the details about membership at the membership tab at bestofleft.com links to the music and the sources used in this and every episode of course are always available in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway and border yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. My name is Mike. Can I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening, do those free things that Jay asks you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.